So he never said why he did it. And the people that were impacted by it thought it was too good to be true. You see, there was a man named Luis Carlos who lived in Portugal, a very wealthy man, and he had no heirs to all of his kingdom. And so he wasn't sure what to do. So before he passed, 13 years before he passed, because he didn't know when he was passing, just like you and me, maybe you do, uh, I didn't, uh, all right? So he didn't know when he was going to pass. What he did was he gathered uh, two witnesses in a room. He asked them to bring local phone books. And so they brought local phone books. And he set the phone book on a table in front of them. And he just started going through the pages randomly and picking names. And he would say, that's going to be one of the heirs. And so in the two, presence of two witnesses, the attorney, the notary, they write down, okay, that's one of them. He kept doing that for a handful of people. I mean, the, the amount of wealth that he had is, is not even understandable. And so he picked a handful of people. 13 years later, when he passes, those handful of people got a phone call letting them know that they had an inheritance waiting for them. Multiple billions of dollars for each one of them. Could you imagine getting that phone call? Like, hello, how are you doing? Uh, hi, Shanice. Uh, just to let you know, there's $35 billion ready for you to receive. What would you do? Everything about it changes. Everything changes. Uh, I asked this question to, uh, to our, our, our worship pastor, Nate. I said, Nate, what would you do? I was talking to Nate and Bob. What would you do? And they're like, well, we'd take a trip, but probably keep doing what we're doing because we love what we get to do, right? Like, what would you do? Everything would change. You see, for them, they thought it was too good to be true. Uh, one of the news networks, BBC, did a, an interview with them, and they were like, this has to be a scam. Something has to be wrong. That somehow someone would pick me out of a random book that I would have the rights, the privileges, the property, and the inheritance. That I would have a complete new identity. There is no way. It's as if I've had their name my entire life. That's the same thing that God does with us. But he doesn't do it by random. He chooses us purposefully and intentionally. He says, I want you to be in my family. In this series, we've been talking about purpose, and much of purpose, if you haven't figured out, is about identity, because our identity essentially controls our activity. And today, I want to talk about this idea of what are we going to do? How do we embrace our God-given identity? I said, imagine if you received that a lump sum of money, whatever it may be, but imagine if there was a God, the creator of the universe, who saw you and said, I want to give you all of the rights, all of the privileges, all of the property, all of the inheritance that I have as God, the creator of the universe, who created all things. Whew, that's a new identity. Everything begins to change. And we've been talking about this idea through Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that it's in Christ we find out who we are and what we're living for. It's in Christ we found out who we are, identity, and what we're living for, activity. Now, these past few weeks, we've been really focusing on the identity because if we don't get the identity piece, we're not going to understand the activity piece. Now, if you were someone who had extreme wealth, wouldn't that change the way that you maybe approach someone in need? It changes everything about us. So we've been doing this each week. This has been our theme verse. I want to say it all together. On the count of three, we'll say it uh, loudly. We'll also say it slowly, so all of us can read in sync with one another. Even if you're watching online, join us. So on the count of three, we'll read this, and then we'll say Ephesians 1.11 at the end. That's where it's found. So one, two, three. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. It's in Christ. Ephesians 1.11. Yes, you did it. You're better than me. Great job. Uh, so we, we have to know our identity because it affects our activity. We talked a little bit last week, what happens is we search for identity in so many other things. We start with ourself, 
many, many people who are studying the mind, they call this um, experiential individualism. I just want to experience the world all by myself and everything that I have within me. And I just want to focus on my desires. Your desires? Do you know how quick our desires change? Do you remember that thing that you had to have? That you just, I mean, you cried when you got it. Where is it at now? Oh, no, we sold it. Yeah, it's just, it's just gone. Our desires change. And then we, we want to find our identity in other people. But other people change, don't they? I don't know if you knew that. People change. And so, well, my identity can't be that anymore because I was dressing just like them, but now everyone's dressing like we're in the 90s again. You know, everything changes. We find our identity in others, and that doesn't work. Then we try to find our identity in the world, and that doesn't work. So maybe we can find our identity in religion and focusing on every single law. If we do all of the law, then maybe I'll be good enough in the sight of God. This is what was happening in the church of Galatia, where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. This is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians. It's the beginning of our acronym. I said that's going to work out for an entire series. Go eat popcorn. Go. Galatians. That's where we're going to be first. Uh, so Galatians, that's what was happening here. There was these people that were called the Judaizers that were coming in and would say, hey, we know that Jesus died for everything and we've been redeemed, but there's a few more things that you have to do to be fully saved. And maybe you've been to a church, maybe you grew up in a church that that's what you thought, where I had to do certain things to be fully loved by God. Like God kind of loves me now, but man, he really loved me if I were to do this. And this is this whole idea of, of legalism, when we think our acceptance is based on our performance. So in Galatians chapter 1, this is what Paul corrects. He says, wait, Jesus died once and for all. In fact, all throughout Galatians, the theme of it would be that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Nothing else. You can't add or subtract from the work that Christ has done for us. So he, he tells them right away, legalism is not the way. Christ has already done what he needed to do. Then he goes on in Galatians chapter 2 and he talks about hypocrisy. That's when, when we live a certain way, but tell other people that we're living the right way. He says, we can't live like that either. Uh, we've had many different messages about this. You can look back and you can watch online, newbrick.church slash watch. We've talked about this idea. But Paul goes about this in Galatians. Then we get to Galatians chapter 3. And, and all throughout the Galatians, he, he begins, he says, it's as if someone put a spell on you. Now he's speaking to people who understand sorcery and, and, and magic. And, and he says, someone must have put a spell on you because you think that the work of Christ was not good enough. And now you're living away. That is not at all what Christ has prescribed. That's not living in your purpose. Someone put a spell on you thinking that Christ died, but I need to add to what Christ has done. No, we just get to receive it. And so he goes through uh, 2,000 plus years of history. He said, you remember in, in, in Genesis, there was a great promise uh, that was given. And uh, all throughout, you see it later in, with Abraham, that there was a promise given to him that he would be a father of many nations, that God would bless him, that he would love him, and those who are born after him would be the seed of Abraham. And then Moses came along, and there was a law given to Moses. And, and what happened with the law, there's 613 laws that uh, if you, Jewish culture, you'd, you'd read every single one of them and have to follow every single one of them. The purpose of the law was to show us that we could not save ourselves. But what happens is we look at the law and we say, maybe this can save me. The law was not to be the savior. 
And Paul is going to talk more about that. The law was simply to show us and to point us to Christ because we ultimately need a Savior. I thought of an illustration this way. I heard it like this, that, that the law is the cage that the lion is in as the lamb is outside. Right? The cage stops the lion from going after the lamb. However, the cage cannot stop the lion from wanting to go after the lamb. So the law is like this thing that stops you from doing what maybe we shouldn't do, but it doesn't change the heart. That only comes from Christ. And so we see that in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, return with me. Galatians 3. We're going to start in verse 21. Remember I talked about the law and the promises. He says this, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. I love how Paul talks. Uh, If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But it can't. Verse 22, but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. If you write in your Bibles, circle, highlight, underline. God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. There is no addition on top of that. Believe in Jesus and your life has changed. Verse 23. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in productive custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. And he goes, and let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. This is as if you're on a date, and Pastor Joanne shared about that. You know, you're, you have your date nights at family camp. You're on a date, and the guardian is there. Someone who is a babysitter is there. When you come back home, imagine if the babysitter was like, oh, these kids are mine now. That, wouldn't, that would not work. I don't know about you. Uh, the parents would walk in and say, oh, those are my kids. Thank you for watching them. Here's $5 or whatever. You know, the price nowadays is insane, right? Yeah, too much. Here's, here's $175 uh, for the two hours that you watched. Um, I'm, if you're paying that much, I'll sign up. But the guardian is just there for a moment until the parent comes. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying it protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now the way of faith has come. He's talking about the era and the reign of Christ, the era of faith, which only comes in Christ. We no longer need the law as our guardian. He goes on in verse 26. For you are all children. In the original language, it says sons. And the reason it says sons is not because it's excluding daughters. It's saying because sons carried a certain type of inheritance that came from the father to carry the last name and to continue going. So he says, you are all now bearers of the last name of God. You are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on new clothes. Like putting, like put on Christ like putting on new clothes. We talked about this last week. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week as well. But Paul really wants us, and I believe God wants us to understand there's no division when it comes to the kingdom of God. There are differences, but there's no division. Whether it's a racial, social, national, or economical, there is no difference anymore. There is no division. We are all one. And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. So you get that promise. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So if I want to live in my purpose, according to what we just read, and and I know it was a lot, but I want to ensure that we hold on to the work of Christ has been completed, and I get to receive the gift of that. I don't live in my purpose when I'm trying to gain the acceptance of God. 
I live in my purpose when I receive that God chose me and already accepted me. In fact, that he welcomed me into his family. So the first thing we must do is understand that my identity is found in God's family. That God would welcome me and empower me to live as his own. He says, Marcus, you are now Marcus, God's last name. He doesn't have one. He just has one. I am, right? So you are now Marcus, belonging to God. That is it. Everything about you changes. He goes on in Galatians, for you are all called children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and now you have been united with Christ in baptism. So you have his name and his likeness. When a child is born, what happens? Uh, the father and the mother look at the child and say, oh my gosh, he has your nose. He has your lips. He's got your ears. They got some big ears. He's got your, you know, like we do that because the child looks like the parent. You have the name and you have the likeness. And as we grow in maturity, we begin to have his values. We begin to care about the things he cares about. We get to have the possibilities that are only found in Christ and in the kingdom of heaven that we get to bring to earth. We have the realities that we're experiencing even today, the responsibilities, and then we have the activity of our identity, which Paul is saying is baptism. You put on Christ like you're putting on new clothes. This is baptism. You see, Paul is saying this because when he's writing this, there is no such thing as an unbaptized believer. And I know for some of us thinking today, well, you know, I, I was baptized when I was, when I was a young kid. I, I think I'm good. And maybe there is a time in our lives where we need to say, you know, the old needs to go and the new has come. So I'm putting on Christ because I'm identifying with my family. And each month, this month, on January 29th, we have baptisms. The last Sunday of the month, we have baptisms. And as you go into the water, the old family name is gone. And as you come out of the water, the new family name is there. You have a new familial identity. How powerful is that? I know when my, when my wife and I first got married, or actually first started dating, sorry, uh, we introduced each other to each other's families. I've said this before, my family is very loud, extremely loud. Uh, she was sharing with someone who was meeting my family for the first time, and she said, hey, so I just want to let you know, first, you're going to have to interrupt them when they start talking, because they're just going to keep talking, and they'll talk over everyone. And they were like, oh, okay. And so my family started going, do you remember last time? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. And they, they just sat back and said, oh, my goodness. I was like, that is my family. You go to her family, and it is just, hi, how are you doing? How are we doing? Yeah, it's just, you get both the families together, it's like, there's, there's one table that's just talking all day, and the other table is like, oh, we're doing order. You know, our family identity, now as her and I are together as one, is a mixture of both. When you go into the water and you come out announcing your familial identity as Christ, God doesn't change how he wired you. What he does is he reveals who you truly are to everyone else. It's a powerful moment, and if you haven't thought about getting baptized, we want to encourage you. You can sign up at newbreak.church slash events. Meet us outside on the blue tent. Uh, we want to see you sign up for baptism because it's a way that we get to show the world my life has been changed. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was lost, and I was found, and I was broken, and now I'm whole. I was unwanted, and now I'm desired. I was hopeless, and now I'm hope-filled. It's a place where I finally can say I have a place to belong in the family of God. I'm united with Christ in baptism. And there's many times we have to remind ourselves that because I am united with him, he already chose me. Maybe I don't have to keep trying to seek more of his approval because I have to remind my mind what God says about his kids. You see, when Jesus was getting baptized, heavens opened up and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. 
Hear his dearly loved child who brings him great joy. This is before Jesus does any miracle, before he does any type of miraculous work, a voice from heaven, God himself said, this is my son. Before you try to achieve or seek to achieve anything else, please know you are what God thinks about. He says, you are my daughter and you bring me joy. You are my son and you bring me joy. You might be thinking, well, I mean, I don't bring you joy with the things that I have done. I mean, I've messed up. You are my son and you bring me joy. Nothing will ever change that. You're my daughter, you bring me joy. Nothing will ever change that. In our men's group, if you haven't signed up for a group, please sign up for a group, newbreak.church slash groups. Talk to us outside at the blue tent. We want to see you in a life group. Our men's group, we're going through the book of Ephesians right now. And all of us, it was if, we, we call it when Paul does a mic drop. Maybe it wasn't a mic, it was like a pen. He was writing and just dropped the pen when something really good was said. Ephesians 1:18 declares that we are God's glorious inheritance. For a God who has everything, created everything, created the entire universe, he looks at us and he says, you're what I want. God, you could have anything. You're what I want. Well, God, I have some blemishes and I have some mess ups. You're what I want. Well, God, isn't there someone else that could be better? No, you're what I want. He chooses us. And we still find ourselves striving for more of his affection and his love when he says, you bring me great joy, and he loves us unconditionally. Please know, when he calls us children of God, his love is unconditional. And if God's love is unconditional, that he can't love me more or love me any less, then I need to find myself being freed from the need to achieve more love from him. But I think we have this inner fight. Uh, if, Maybe you don't, but, but I do. I have this inner fight that says, uh, I don't want to focus on believing, I want to focus more on doing. And if I focus more on doing, it's a dangerous path. Because uh, like the old hymn says, I'm prone to wonder. I, I love the Lord with all of my heart, my soul, and mind, and I want to stay focused on him. But what happens is I think, maybe I can get closer to him if I do more for him. And I'm prone to wonder in this wrong idea of legalism. And it doesn't just affect my relationship with Jesus, it affects my relationship with everything in my life. It's, I, I trust what I do more than what God has done. I, I grew up in a, in a household where uh, that, that wasn't the view of family, not unconditional love. It was very conditional. Uh, my father was in the Marines, and so when he was home, which was very rare, um, he had a very strict way of doing certain things. If you cut the lawn, there had to be lines that were going in a certain way. Not just straight, they had to be kind of diagonal, every single one of them. And when you mowed the lawn, your chest was out and your chin was up, is what he would tell me. You go, you go, and you go back, you push it down, and you come back, you go back around, put it down, and you know, and they, I was like, okay, the way I would fold grocery bags, grocery bags would come home and I had to make them really tight, fold them up, and we had this little grocery bag holder. Uh, in my house, we kept grocery bags. For what? I don't know, but we did. We kept them all. They were always under the sink. There's a couple of you in here, I'm sure, right? <laughs> but they had to be folded in a certain way. And, oh, if a bag was pulled out and was not folded in the way that he had required it to be folded, there was wrath coming. That's the type of house that I grew up in, and I had to do everything the right way. Vacuuming had to have the certain lines in the right way. I remember one time I vacuumed, and I was like, I'm going to do circles today. I did circles. Well, I don't do circles anymore, okay? So last time I ever did that. But I was, I was told often by my earthly father that you're too smart to make mistakes like that. And if you're really smart, you do the right thing. 
and you'd look more like this and more like that. And you would stop walking this way and you'd start saying things like this and you would start working like this and you wouldn't, you wouldn't play around with, with doing stuff for the church because that's not gonna get you money. You need to start with business and you need to do things like this. And, and he would tell me all the time and he'd tell me that I, I'm smarter than that. At the same time with those words, he would say, you're also not smart enough. And so at the same time, I'm living in this world where I'm, I'm smarter than this, but I'm not smart enough. So which one am I? And all throughout my life and even still today, I hear the tape being played that I'm not good enough or I'm just not good at all. So what does that do to how I live my life? Well, I start to view everyone else as someone else who was, was like my earthly father was. And, well, Marcus, you're smarter than that. You need to work harder. So I did. And I call myself a recovering workaholic. Uh, I worked and worked and worked and worked. And the difficult thing about a workaholic is, is people reward you for your overworking and your neglecting of your family. You're such a hard worker. So you get promoted at different jobs, whether it was in retail or business. I get promoted at different jobs because you're such a hard worker. We know we can reach you at any time because I wanted their approval. And I would consistently hope that one day someone would say, I'm proud of you. Are you proud of me yet, Dad? Is what I would still think even in my 20s. Are you proud of me yet, Dad? Even though I didn't talk to him. Even after he went into prison. Are you proud of me yet, Dad? And I never knew that there was a heavenly father that said, I'm so proud of you, son. You bring me great joy. A couple of years ago, my mom remarried, who now is my earthly father, Bob. And can I tell you, Bob, one of the things he does every time I see him is he gives me a hug and he says, I'm proud of you, son. As amazing as my earthly father is, there still is a heavenly father that still sees me and says my love is unconditional. The first time in my life I experienced unconditional love from a man was Bob, and I was over 30 years old. God wants to give us that same unconditional love because Paul would go on in Galatians, later on in chapter four, in verse four, he would say this, at the right time, God sent his son because he saw you and he chose you. And he said, I understand, you're thinking that you're not good enough. You're thinking that if I wanna live with my purpose and walk in my purpose, I'm gonna have to do more and I gotta make sure I'm doing this and I hold on to all of these laws, but I have to be good and make sure I don't break any one of those laws and I break one of those laws, then I broke my relationship with you and I broke my trust in you. And he says, no, that's not it. At the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him, why? To buy freedom for us, because all else had failed. The law could not buy you. You have a price that only one person can pay. His name is God. And he did it through his son, Jesus. And because of that gift to each one of us, we have the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to walk in our purpose. When the law couldn't buy it, finally the main character arrived. Jesus stepped on the scene and he said, okay, we are now in a courtroom where all of us who were set apart and said we are no good and we're not gonna do any good and everything we have done is wrong. We stand before the judge and the judge picks up the gavel and he says, not guilty. Yes, you did wrong, but the guilt is not gonna be on you. It's gonna be on my son. That's justification. So he bangs the gavel and says, not guilty. And when there would be a hush over the entire courtroom, the judge speaks again and he says, you have a new family, you can come home with me. That's the adoption. Freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. There's a theologian, J.I. Packer. I really enjoy reading his literature. He says this, adoption is the greatest privilege 
of the gospel when it comes to the children of God. You've been adopted by Christ. All of us, we had, we had fathers that didn't love us as they could. In fact, scripture would remind us, Jesus would say in John chapter 8, that our real father, our earthly father, our spiritual father, was the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies. And he will always abandon you. He will always leave you. And he will always forsake you. But Jesus reminds us, he will never leave us. And he's always going to be there. And so in the midst of a moment when we feel like orphans, God says, that one. That's the one that I want. And I choose you and I bring you to me. The greatest privilege of the gospel is that God saw us and he adopts us. But so many of us still when it comes to our identity, when it comes to our activity, through our purpose, we still think, but there's so many times when I fail God. I just fail him so many times, time and time again. I, I, I try doing the right thing, and then I, I don't read enough, I don't say enough, or I, I don't lift my hands the right way, or I don't pray enough. I don't, I, we act like we failed God. In, in the hardest time of my life, uh, these two boys, these are my nephews, uh, Josh, Joshua on your left with the glasses, those are my glasses, so I can't see anything in this picture. Uh, on the right is my other nephew, Johnny, and we're actually at Baskin Robbins, which used to be here in Tirasana, and there we're watching Kids YouTube, and I'm having a blast, you can see as well, because I love Kids YouTube. Um, the hardest time in my life when simultaneously, w- without warning, I was in the midst of a divorce, and my sister was in the midst of a divorce within a week. And what am I to do? I had no clue. All I knew was that the father of these kids was no longer present. And I had my 71 Ford 4x4. (laughs) It was beautiful, F100. But I couldn't fit them in it. So I sold the truck so I'd get a car that could fit them in it. Because I said, you know what? You didn't have a father who's with you now, so I'm just going to step in. And I essentially adopted those boys. And can I tell you that to this day, there is no mess too big, no cry too small, no word too harsh to change my love for them. No matter what they do or say, and they will do some wild things. Joshua has slapped me across the face, just walked up and bah! (laughs) Now, I still love them. I mean, (laughs) fisticuffs. No, I'm just kidding, but... But my love doesn't change for them. And there's no distance close enough. I will forever be the uncle who says, come closer to me. Whatever I have, you can have. That's, that's the beauty of adoption. And not that I am perfect, but that God, in all of his perfect, unconditional love, says, boys, there's nothing you could do. Girls, there's nothing you could do. Daughters and sons, there's nothing you could do that could ever change the way that I love you because I adopted you and I chose you. And I understand that you felt unwanted. I understand that you felt unloved. I understand that you felt as if you had no purpose, but I chose you and I've adopted you. And we have to know adoption in our world today versus the ancient world is a bit different. Uh, There's a a theologian, and she said it this way, and I thought it was so beautiful, I I had to share. She said, the common understanding of adoption in the Greco-Roman world would have been functional. And this is like it's for for some type of purpose and moves as it happens. It was a practice of the elite, especially the emperors, elite, just like God. To secure succession, legacy, and inheritance. Did you see that? It's not, adoption was not simply the rescue of orphans, it was the promise of a future. There's going to be a future for you. 
And she goes on, adopted sons were pulled into a bigger story and expected to fulfill a bigger imperial purpose. Everything changed when you were adopted by someone who was royalty. And as we live our earthly lives, we are still learning to adopt this new mindset that I've been adopted by God, chosen by him, and everything changes. My past, my present, and my future changes. I wanted to invite up Amanda Medina, who actually has experienced adoption, earthly adoption, and heavenly adoption. So could we give Amanda a hand as she comes up? If you would stand right over here. Yeah, Uh, Amanda, this passage obviously brings some stuff up for you uh, because there's a word in it that really impacts you. Um, Why is that? So um, anything, anytime the word adoption is mentioned, my attention definitely goes, wait, what? And that's because when I was about two years old, I was adopted from Colombia to Sweden. Wow. So I live, my entire life is through adoption. And I'm sure being adopted at that age and growing up still brings up so many questions, insecurities, difficulties, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit of hope. Um, but what was the one thing when you were adopted and you grew up to kind of to know that that was the reality? What was the one thing you were searching for through your adoptive family? Yeah, so all those things you just mentioned, I can say were true in my life. Um, big questions, big feelings. Um, an, an entire experience that I didn't understand at the time because it was just so enormous. Um, but I think the one thing that I always desired was to feel seen for who I am. Uh, which at the time, as a child, I didn't even know myself. I'm just finding out now. Um, but there was a lot of disconnect for me. Um, and I think there can be for anyone. But as an adoptee, I had the added layer of looking around and not feeling or experiencing reflection from the people around me, the society around me. Um, And it made for a lonely experience, a very confusing experience. Um, And I think I didn't know that I could ask these big questions. And so I just, I carried it alone, um, not realizing that there are other people out there, other adoptees that experience the same thing. It's very normal. Yeah. You know, you feel like you were abandoned or, or you don't know what happened to you as a baby. And um, it wasn't until I'm an adult that I realized this as I'm talking openly about my experience and hearing from others like, yeah, me too. Thank you for, for sharing that and uh, really um, understanding the whole experience. Yeah. Um, but as a child, it was, it was complex. It was difficult at the time. Yeah. Which is why I'm so passionate today to talk about <laughs> it, talk openly and authentically and share with anyone who's willing to listen. And I could go on and on, but I'm going to keep it short because okay. I know we don't have too much time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would first say that you're in good company. Uh, did anyone grow up in a complex family? Complex. That's a really nice way to say that, by the way. A complex <laughs> family. Yeah. Um, I have different words for it. But yeah, that's, uh, I, that's I one well of them. Um, but years later you were introduced to your heavenly father Mm -hmm. and a heavenly adoption. Uh, What did that do within you? And did you kind of believe maybe some of those things that you were desiring were fulfilled through your perfect heavenly father? Absolutely. Um, It was actually this, within this past year, since coming to New Break, um, that I, all of a sudden, sitting here, 
I may have been Pastor Robert or you, I'm not sure, but in a service, um, it just dawned on me. I am a child of God, and God is a perfect father. Always was, always will be. I was loved by him first and foremost. And as I had that realization, I was able to extend a lot of grace towards my earthly father, who I many times felt did not quite hit the mark um, as a father and, and my mother. And I was able to kind of replace a lot of resentment, a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion with love and peace. Wow. That's so powerful. Uh, how, how did being adopted, uh, obviously you have this earthly adoption, uh, you have a heavenly adoption. How did that impact you and your purpose? And I know uh, there's one group right now. I know there's so many more within you. Um, if you don't know, uh, Amanda, Medina, her entire family, they are a powerhouse of people. God is birthing ministry within them, and there is so much calling and purpose on your lives. Uh, but would you tell us how your entire experience from uh, birth to today um, with Christ and without Christ has impacted you for your purpose and what you're doing with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, um, let me see, I had, uh, okay. I had it planned out. Well, so I think of Joseph, the story of Joseph being sold off to strangers um, by his earthly brothers. Um, and that was many times maybe how I felt, like given away, cast aside, um, and not understanding. But then the next step to that, the, the piece that brings it all together, it's how God worked and turned that around. Yeah. And that's where I am now. I'm seeing how my earthly adoption, um, in, the, in my heavenly adoption, I find the purpose mm. of all the struggles I went through in my earthly adoption. And so I've started a life group for adoptees. And because once I realized that all these questions are okay to have and God can handle them, uh, I don't need to pull away from God when I have these questions and this doubt. I, I do the opposite. Draw near, go in the Bible, find the answer. They're there. And so um, I wanted to do that study for myself. And then I said, well, I'm sure there are others out there just yeah. like me. And so let's have a group. Let's have a life group. We meet on Zoom um, because many of them are all over this country. So we meet on Zoom every Monday at six o'clock and we go in the Bible and we try to understand adoption um, the way God intended it and, and how it really is uh, with the greater purpose. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much, Amanda. Can we give Amanda a hand? Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for letting me thank share. You. Of course. Uh, I, I shared with her that uh, my wife and I uh, plan to foster and adopt, and she said, well, I want to give you all of the tools so that you can continually do it the way that God has designed and the right way. And I'm like, yes, uh, all the tools, we will take them. But that's, that's the beauty of it. She said her heavenly adoption really impacted her or reminded her that the past that she had lived really was fueling for the purpose that God has for her. And the fact that God would choose any single one of us and say, you are my child, should transform the way we think and cause us to live as truly as God's children, not just his creation. Right? Because the truth is, as Paul was saying, that we used to be slaves. We used to live this life where we were slaves and there was a master. If there's a slave and there's a master, there's always distance. But if we're a child and that's our father, we always want to be close because God is good and it's good to be near him.
I'll say it again. God is good and it's good to be near him. A master would say, serve me or die to the slave. A father would say, I would die to save you and serve you. That's what the good father says to us today. And the one who would know us best is the one who loves us the most, our heavenly father. He would know everything about us and still love us, as one theologian would say. Everything about you and still love you in a way that causes us to say, Dad, maybe you haven't in your prayers just said, Dad, I come before you. And maybe for you, like it was for me, I used to think that this was a way to kind of put down God and his actual title. But it actually brings him close. Because he's, he's not just Lord. He's my father. So I can say, Dad. As I've received his son, I can approach the father. There's a story of an extremely wealthy art collector. Um, as he was preparing his future of his life and writing his will, his son passed away. And it's never anyone's hope that they would bury their kids. And this wealthy art collector, after his son is buried, realizes there's no heir and he writes the will as he does and he passes. Uh, this wealthy art collector, this king and his kingdom sets out an announcement. I'm going to have an auction of everything that he's ever owned and for his inheritance. All of the art. Now, there's people that came from all over the world. Thousands and thousands of people came to this giant place to see all of these art pieces that he had collected over the years. Ones that were stuck behind glass that no one had ever touched. Ones that no one ever knew existed because they knew that he had so many that you could never experience them all in one day. And the auctioneer stands up to the podium and says the auction will begin with this first piece. And this piece comes out on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And it's a drawing of the wealthy art collector's son that his son drew. And everyone around kind of looks at it and goes, that's not very good. That's not the art we came for. We want the good stuff. Show, show us Michelangelo. Show us some of the amazing art pieces that you have. And it was just silent. So the auctioneer said, auction has begun with this first piece. And then out of the corner of her eye, she sees this elderly man coming forward. And she looks at him and realizes, I kind of know who that man is. It was one of the workers inside of this huge mansion and the elderly man came forward with only two dollars in his pocket he pulls out he said I'll buy it and she said sold and he takes the piece with tears in his eyes and he kind of stands for a moment because he can't believe that he has something he can remember his master by the auctioneer quickly as there's still a bit of excitement still a bit of a hush because they're waiting for the good stuff to come out she says, auction over. Everyone is scrambling at this point. Why is the auction over? What does this mean? Why is, why is the auction over? There's more art to be bought, more art to be sold. We came here with money. We're ready to buy the good stuff. She picks up a sheet of paper and she says, the will explicitly states that the person who is willing to accept my son and accept the gift that he has given is, is able to experience all of the benefits of the father and they are now an heir 
God says the same thing to us. Are you willing to receive my son, accept the work that he has done for you? And at that point, you are an heir and you can call me Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. That word Abba, Father is such a beautiful phrase. It's amazing to me that Paul, speaking to people that were most likely speaking Hebrew, he would write an Aramaic word for father, Abba. I wonder if he wrote the word Abba to them because it was the same way that Jesus prayed. Our father, Abba in Aramaic. And that word Abba is such a beautiful word. It's, a, it's an endearing word. It's not just father, father. It's, it's this idea of dad, like a child would say. In fact, the first words growing up, often the kids, instead of saying dad, 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 they would say Abba, 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 Abba. Can we get to that point? Say Abba. And then father, pater, is, is that word. Again, now we're in Greek. Pater. When you have dad and you have father, you have this idea of intimacy and authority because something happens when dad walks in the room. You may be scared of what's happening in the dark, but as soon as, as, soon as the perfect father walks in the room, everything changes. Something happens when dad walks into the room. God is good and it's good to be near him. You've been adopted. You are children of God with a new name, a new purpose, a new identity that allows us to live with purpose and walk in purpose because our identity forms our activity. I want to pray for all of us. If you would just close your eyes just for a moment. Lord, when the disciples asked how they should pray, you said, pray in this way, our Father, who is in heaven, your name is set apart. God, let us not forget that you are our perfect heavenly father, that you are truly dad. In the most intimate idea of the word, you are dad to us. So for those of us waiting to be called children, speak to our hearts even now. We say, dad, what are you saying to us? about who we are, about what we've done, about what you have done for us, and about what steps we need to take as we walk in our purpose. So we ask you now, what are you saying? Maybe wherever you're at, if you just put your hands out in front of you, just as a way to receive what God wants to speak to you and place on you and in you today. God, whatever you are speaking, whatever you are giving, we receive it in your name because you're a perfect father who gives amazing, perfect gifts. So let us receive the unconditional love of a perfect father and let us walk in our purpose. In your name we pray, amen. Let's give God a hand. We serve a powerful God who loves us completely. Thank you, church.